intend to be brief, but then always intend to be brief. Um, but I do intend to be really sensitive to your day uh, because I know it's uh, Wednesday evening and you've had a long day. Uh, Luke chapter 15. In the Academy of Fine Arts in Venice, Italy, there is a painting that is suspended there for all to see. It was painted by Paolo Veronese. And uh, it pictures Jesus at a banquet scene with his disciples. In one corner, in a small huddle, is Roman soldiers. In one corner of the room is a man with a bloody nose. In the background of the table are black moors, midgets in the foreground, dogs scattered about, and miscellaneous ragmuffin kinds of people. The um, Inquisition got wind of this painting, and so they... what? Am I doing something wrong? The Inquisition got wind of this painting, and so they sent people to investigate. And they interrogated the artist Veronese. And they said, please explain the painting. He showed them from the Gospels that these are the very kinds of people with whom Christ mingled. These are the very kinds of people whom Christ came to save. The inquisitors were scandalized because of the depiction of Jesus mingling with such low life, such notorious sinners. And so they compelled him to change the title of the painting and to change the context or the scene from one of a religious context to a more secular context. And so Veronese did. Unwittingly, that's the very attitude of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15. And as we've endeavored to do each Wednesday night, we've tried to set the context because the context is really important in interpreting and applying the parables. The Pharisees were appalled by a Savior who would receive even welcome people like we're going to find in these parables. They were surprised, chagrined, that a Savior would stoop and receive tax collectors and prostitutes and foreigners, that is, non-Jews, that he would receive them and welcome them and even enjoy table fellowship with them. They stood perhaps at the edge of the crowd, grinding their molars and muttering under their breath through narrowed eyes as they could not believe that a man who claimed to be holy, that a man who claimed to be a Savior, would stoop and condescend and actually welcome and receive the kinds of people that flocked to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not swallow the notion that God would deign save people who were this bad. You know, the gospel is not a human invention. We could not even begin to imagine the gospel. It is a product of divine revelation born of God's saving love for lost and fallen people. C.S. Lewis once responded to a question posed at a British conference on comparative religions. What is the unique contribution of Christianity to the religions of the world. And he immediately responded. He said, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the unique contribution of Christianity to the world. The notion of God's love coming to us uh, in spite of our just deserves, in spite of our not having any merit or any standing before God, in spite of the fact that we deserve judgment and condemnation, Oh, the gospel that communicates saving grace to fallen and flawed people like us. You will not find grace in the Buddhist eightfold path. 
You will not find grace in the Hindu's pursuit of nirvana. You will not find grace in an Islamic law code. You will not find grace in secular humanism that embraces the concept of survival of the fittest. But you will find grace greater than all of your sins in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have called the parables contained in this chapter the capstone of Jesus' parabolic ministry. There are three of them. And you'll find them here in Luke 15 because there's a series of three parables. And um, to give you the context, I would initially draw your attention to verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. Then the Bible says that all the tax collectors, and you have to understand tax collectors were collaborators of the Roman Empire. I mean, they were the lowest of the low. It's not that we're overly fond of the IRS today, um, but they were outcasts and believed to be beyond redemption. And verse 1 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, Jesus, to hear him. And in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus spoke this parable to them. That's the context. They were appalled that this man, who would claim to be Israel's Messiah, this man who claimed to be the Son of the living God, would receive and welcome people like this. But I'm glad tonight that Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. I'm glad tonight that Jesus still receives and welcomes sinners like us into His presence. This is an amazing trilogy of parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. The latter has been called the pearl and crown of Jesus' parables. One commentator called it the gospel within the gospel. And Linsky, a Lutheran commentator, said there's no equal to it in all of literature. And we're eventually going to get to the parable of what's commonly called the, the prodigal son. But I want to give you a little bit of the context as we get there. The main point of the parables, I'll tell you that up front because I may wax a little long here at the end. Let me go ahead and tell you the main point of the parables. The main point of the parable is to reveal the heart of God for fallen people. It's to demonstrate in nugget form in these parables the outpouring of God's great love upon people who deserve judgment and condemnation. This is the unveiling of the heart of God for flawed and fallen and broken people. It is to show us that no one is beyond the pale of redemption. No one is beyond the reach of omnipotent grace. Three great parables. And here's where I'd like to start. Observation number one, this is a picture of lost people. It is a picture of lost people. The three parables conspire to describe the state of being lost. The first parable speaks of a sheep that has strayed from the fold You'll find that in verse 1. What man of you, Jesus asks, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Sheep lose their way because of their appetite. They nibble their way right out of the fold. They nibble their way beyond the, the scope of the shepherd's care. One mouthful at a time, takes them away from the flock, away from the fold, away from the shepherd's nurture and care. 
and supervision. And some people are like that, aren't they? They pursue their own appetites, they pursue their own desires, and they do so to their eventual ruin and misery and put themselves in greater peril than they could even begin to imagine. The lost sheep illustrates what Trench describes as the centrifugal tendency of sin. That is, sin, and Dr. Young preached on this in... um, Earlier um, in the year, in the spring, um, a wonderful sermon from uh, Genesis 19 about Lot. But Trench says that this parable, the parable of the lost sheep, illustrates the centrifugal force or tendency of sin. That is, sin takes us further than we want to go. It takes us deeper than we want to go. It carries us further than we would imagine because we're drawn away by our own appetites and by our own desires. It takes us further and further away from God's revealed will for our lives. Still, the utter lostness of the sheep is overmatched by the sacrificial love of the shepherd who pursues the sheep, who pursues the lost sheep. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as a shepherd. We're all familiar with Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But three times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as a shepherd. He says of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for whom? Whom does Christ lay down his life for? Starts with an S, ends with a P. Sounds like sheep. Maybe I should have said, ah, giving you a clue there. He says, I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. In Hebrews 13, Wonderful benediction that Dr. Young invokes over us occasionally at the end of a Lord's Day service. Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd who has risen from the dead and who will accomplish his good will in and through us. Later in 1 Peter chapter 2 and then again in 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. He oversees the care and uh, the protection of his people. This first parable speaks of a sheep that is strayed from the flock. And we are like that sheep, utterly dependent upon the love of a shepherd that will not let us go. There's an old hymn, you may be familiar with it. Uh, Oh, love that will not let me go. Such is the love of Christ for His people. He loves us with a love that will not let us go. He has pursued us and saved us from all of our sin. The second parable in verse 8 speaks of a lost coin. Uh, Or what woman, Jesus says, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. The idea here may be that this was part of a dowry. It may have been a part of a marriage package. But nevertheless, the woman loses a coin as I sometimes lose my keys or my glasses around the house, and we search high and low for them. And it must be a man thing, guys, um, because Melinda can come immediately and put her hand on them, and it's always in a place that I've been looking. Come on, fess up, fellas. Has that ever happened to you? Let's see those hands. All the time. You're right. It happens all the time. How about this? You open the pantry door, you open the refrigerator, and you're looking, and you say, Honey, where's the peanut butter? It's in the pantry. No, it's not. I'm looking in the pantry. And she comes right by you, reaches right by your head, and grabs the peanut butter. Has that ever happened? So 
I'm telling you, this woman's lost a coin, she's going to find it. If the man had lost the coin, he'll never find it. How wise is Jesus to say a woman lost a coin and she looks the house over? Now, I'm sure she found it, but that's beside the point. The point is the parable speaks of something else being lost, something of great value. Some people are seemingly swept away, carried away by the current of sin and disobedience. They're surrounded by it at school or at work, and their, their lives are carried into disobedience, and they offer no more resistance to it than an inert coin lying on a countertop until it is inadvertently dusted off and becomes lost. The third parable, however, and that's the one we really want to focus on in the hour that we have left. The third parable provides a more penetrating and accurate portrait of lost sinners. It's the parable of the lost son. And I think perhaps it's Jesus' best known parable. None more clearly communicate the love of God for sinners than a father scanning the horizon, looking for the son to come to his senses and come home. In verses 11, 12, and 13, Jesus says, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided, them his li- he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The underlying heart condition of the unconverted is so vividly, so clearly displayed in this younger son who becomes lost by his disobedience. He spurns his father's love. He rejects his father's rule. He misuses his father's gifts. He pursues his self-rule, his self-government to his own ruin. That's the very essence of sin. The very essence of sin is to pursue self-rule and self-government. It's the desire to be its own master, to cast off the restraints of God's benevolent goodness. And you and I first see the picture of this in paradise, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve fairly fresh from the hand of God, surrounded by abundance and plenty, are seduced into embracing the lie that they can be their own God. They don't have to be dependent on this God. They can be their own God. And so they transgress the bounds of God's provision and the bounds of God's providence. This son wanted riches, not a relationship. He wanted gifts, not government. He wanted resources to fuel his passions and not responsibility. The most striking thing, I think, is the thinly veiled malice beneath the son's request. Because normally, an inheritance is divided after death. He was the younger brother. The older brother, based on Old Testament law, would have received the double portion. This young man, at his father's death, would have received approximately a third, let's say, Two-thirds would have gone to the older brother. And so by his saying, Father, give me my inheritance, he is in essence saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want what's mine now. And there's not a parent in here, not a parent in here, who can't feel the pathos of that if you're on the receiving end of that. 
I have to be utterly candid with you. Apart from redeeming grace, that's my heart. I want the blessings of providence without submission. I want the riches of God without the responsibility of being a worshiping son. This is an unerring picture of a fallen heart that is set upon self-rule and self-government. Some are lost, seemingly, if you look at the three parables taken together because they've pursued their own appetites and desires mindlessly to their own ruin. Others are swept away by a current of sin that overwhelms them. But underneath it all, we're all prodigals. We're all prodigals because underneath it all, apart from God's converting grace, there is a steely resolve, a relentless quest to be our own God, to govern and rule our own lives. You see it in the lost son. It's not as clear, but it's there in the older brother too in verse 25, who at the end we will see needs grace no less, perhaps even more, to overcome his heart. We're all lost by nature. The Bible teaches that. We're all lost by choice. The Bible teaches that. We will be lost eternally apart from God's intervention into our lostness. The Bible teaches that. And in a real way, the parable of the lost son sheds light upon the end of self-rule and self-will. It leads everyone just exactly where it led this young man. It leads to ruin and bondage and misery. See, folks, the truth is, sin never makes us free. Lust is never satisfied by more lust. It breeds more. Sin is never satisfied by sin. It needs more. When Paul wrote uh, Romans, and when he gets to chapter 6, he reminds the believers in Rome that apart from conversion, they were slaves of unrighteousness. And later in John chapter 8, Jesus would again be speaking to Pharisees, and he says to them, we're all slaves of sin by birth and slaves of sin by choice. And apart from the liberating power of God, apart from the grace of God coming to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would remain enslaved in our ruin and misery. That's quickly borne out in the parable of the lost son. He runs quickly through his father's resources to deprivation and famine. Verses 15 and 16 say that a famine plunged him into ruin and misery. And here's the bitterness and gall of a life of sin. You end up in the pig pen. You end up living with perpetual dissatisfaction. You know the Rolling Stones are about ready to make another tour. I think their drummer, Bill Wyman, is about 64, 65 now. Mick Jagger just celebrated his 62nd birthday. Whether those guys realize it, realize it or not, it's only God's goodness. They hadn't gone on to their eternal reward a long time ago. But they're about to, about to make another world tour. Do you know what um, was voted as the number one rock song of all time? What, what, when you think about the Rolling Stones and a hit that you can immediately identify, I can't get no satisfaction. Pardon the grammar. I can't get no satisfaction. Is that not a theme song of lostness? Ecclesiastes is all about it. It's all about it. 
Solomon says, I gave myself to pleasure and I can't get no satisfaction. I gave myself to love. I married many women and there's no satisfaction in that. I pursued wealth and riches and there was no satisfaction in that. Well, did Augustine say, God has made our hearts for Himself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him. Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Number one question, what is the chief end of man? And fallen man says, I am. I'm the chief end. The Bible says the chief end of man, the Shorter Catechism parroting the Bible says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And here's this profligate, this prodigal, this rebellious son who finds himself in the stench and squalor of a pig pen. No thinking Jew, no feeling Jew would have ever fed swine, let alone lived among them. And yet he finds himself in the midst of the pigsty. Folks, I'm telling you tonight, following Christ is not a hard life. The path of self-rule and self-government, that's the hard life. It's the hard life. Three times in Isaiah, Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, there is no peace for the wicked. There isn't. The wages of sin is what? Death. And this young man was dying by degrees. It was the death of a family relationship, the death of dignity the death of true freedom and liberty, and he finds himself enslaved in a pig pen. This is the backdrop for the love of God. This is the backdrop for the immeasurable love and grace of God. God welcomes and receives sinners, even people who have the stench of a pigsty about them. And that's reiterated over and over in the three parables. God welcomes and receives sinners And three times in this trilogy of parables, heaven rejoices over sinners who repent and come to God in faith and truth. The grace of God reaches the lowest ebb of our depravity and misery. Ephesians 2 describes that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. We were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. We followed our own desires. We were by nature the children of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, and He has raised us up and He's seated us with Him in heavenly places. And I love this. I don't understand all about it. Randy Turner is going to be able to tell us this time next year because I think his grace group is going to do the book on heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, Jeff Simons will be able to tell us all about it next year because they're going to do the same thing. I don't fully understand this, but listen, Ephesians 2 says that in the ages to come, God is going to show the fullness of His grace, the unfolding of His grace throughout the eons of eternity. We will always be stunned and always move to worship and always move to adoration because of the amazing grace of God that has saved people like us, that has saved people like this lost son. Hallelujah. What a Savior.
And I know that we will never get over it. And we will sing and rejoice about it throughout all eternity. God commands the light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, to shine into darkened hearts no matter where they are. Sinners, though lost, are not forgotten. Psalm 139, David says, If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you are there. Mom and dad, what an encouragement for those of us who have lost sons and daughters. Where will they run from your prayers? Where will they hide from the hound of heaven nipping at their heels? No matter where they go, they will never outrun the long arm of the love of God. He can reach them no matter where they are. He's reached us. The shepherd counted the sheep and realized one was missing and sought it. The woman counted her coins and noticed one was missing and turned the house upside down to find it. That father scanned the horizon day after day looking and longing for the son's return. God did not leave us to wallow in the muck and mire of sin's dark sway. He chose us. He redeemed us through the blood of His Son. He made us alive by His Spirit. And Jesus says in verse 7 and verse 10, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 persons who need no repentance. What a great picture of lost people. What a dark picture, I should say, of lost people. But it forms... Another picture, the picture of repentance. The lost son's journey home begins in verse 17 when he comes to his senses. Verse 17, he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? It takes a mighty work of God to quicken dead stony hearts impervious to their need. I think perhaps one of the great pictures of the Bible of conversion and of the ministry of Dr. Jimmy Young at Gracie Van is found in Ezekiel 37 when God takes Ezekiel out to a valley of dead bones. I'm not comparing you folks to dead bones. Uh, I haven't been here long enough to get away with that foolishness. Um, but he takes Ezekiel out and he says, Ezekiel, what do you see? And he says, I, I, I see a valley of dead bones, dry bones. And the Lord says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And he says, Ezekiel, begin to preach, begin to prophesy. And those bones begin to come together. Let's all sing together. And the anchor, no, let's don't. Um, those bones begin to come together. And then he says, can these bones live? He says, Lord, I don't know. And he says, prophesy to the winds. And the wind began to blow on those skeletons. And flesh and sinew came upon them. And they were brought to life how? by the proclamation of the life-giving, life-changing, saving Word of God, preached and proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and life came as a result of that. It takes a work of God to take the heart of a lost son, even in a pig pen, and bring him to his senses. But our God is able to do it. The son admits without extenuating arguments his sin and his guilt in verses 18 and 19. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired 
servants. True repentance is marked by a genuine sorrow over sin and the recognition of the nature of sin. False repentance is sorrow over exposure and consequences. But true sin sees the heinous nature of the sin and apprehends the mercies of God. And there is a heart wound that is voiced in the cry of this son. David, in a classic model of repentance in Psalm 51, says in anguish of heart against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. True repentance marked by honesty. I've sinned. It's marked by humility. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's also marked by a change of course and action. I will arise and go back to my father's house. I will go back. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 20 says, He arose and he came to his father. The picture of lost people. Dead. Disobedience. Pursuing their own ruin and misery. By the grace of God, they're brought to repentance like this lost son. And then the main point of the parable in verse 20, the picture of God's love. This is the main point, guys. I said that at the beginning. It's taken me 30 minutes to get here. The main point of the parable, God's love is poured out on sinners who spurn His love, who reject His rule, who misuse His gifts, who pursue willful self-government, who use His resources, not as a means of honoring Him and glorifying Him, but who use His common grace goodness to fuel their own ego-driven ends and who reject a relationship to their utter ruin. We use the prodigal. That's how it's often referred to as the prodigal son. We use prodigal to refer to this boy, the son. Prodigal means abundant, lavish, profuse, over the top. It was used of the son spending. But I tell you, this is also a parable of a prodigal father. His love was over the top. His love was lavish and abundant. He poured out His love for this son. It was not proper for a man of dignity to run in public. Important men strolled. They never ran. They never appeared to be in a hurry. But it is said of this father that when he saw the son a long way off, the text says that he ran to meet him. His father ran to meet him. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He ran. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. This is a word picture freighted with great meaning, drawn from the vocabulary and the language of the Son of God who knew the heart of the Father. This is a picture of the love of God hastening to meet repentant sinners who know their sin. The focus changes now from lostness. It changes now to a picture of how God receives people who know they're lost. How God receives people who know they're lost and admit their guilt. He hastens to meet them. And heaven breaks forth into an antiphonal praise of hallelujah to our God. This one, though lost, has been found. The Father scanning the horizon for a wayward son. When He spots him, He runs and greets him. Isn't that a picture of God you see throughout the Bible? Adam and Eve followed the garden. They didn't go seeking after God. God came down in the cool of the day. He sought them. 
in the midst of a antediluvian uh, pre-flood um, wicked civilization. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God pursued Noah. You know where he found Abraham? Abraham was not in first church in Ur of the Chaldees singing out of the Trinity hymnal on the Lord's Day. The Bible says that Abraham was an idolater in a foreign country given over to idolatry. And there God found Abraham. He pursued David. He pursued us through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best loved verses and most oft-memorized verses in the Bible. You know it. John 3.16 God so loved He gave His Son. Romans 5.8 God commends His love toward us in that while we were still sinners He saved us. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we love God but that He loved us and gave His Son. God has pursued us through His Son. And in the days of His flesh our Lord looking in the faces of Peter and Andrew, James and John And the other seven men, Judas having already departed in John 15, he looks at these men and he says, Fellas, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. God still pursues. He pursues through the message of the gospel. He pursues through the ministry of Gracie Van in Guatemala on a sandy beach in Destin, Florida. He pursues in August through the Czech Republic. He pursues at Memphis Union Mission. Everywhere around the world, God still pursues because this is the heart of God. The Father looked past the stench and the wasted appearance to embrace Him in love, a love that would not let Him go. The text says that the Father fell on His neck and kissed Him. Literally, it means that He kissed Him repeatedly. He covered Him with kisses. And if that were not enough, the Father throws a banquet, a celebration He takes him back home and he bestows upon him family emblems, which I hope I'm not stretching it, but what emblems they represent in terms of our salvation. What emblems are given to us though we were lost and now we're found. And God has given us the best robe of imputed righteousness. He's given us the ring of delegated authority. We can invoke the name of Jesus. He's given us the shoes of Status and relationship. Only sons wore shoes. Slaves were barefooted. And then he's thrown a party. As this father killed the fattened calf, so all heaven rejoices when people like us are brought home. There's a final thing I'd share with you this evening. And that is not just a picture of lost people, a picture of repentance and of God's love for sinners, but this is a wonderful picture of our Savior. Jesus' life and ministry was the blueprint, the living embodiment of these three parables. If we were to turn over to Luke chapter 19, he says to another tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man is to come to seek and save that which was lost. You see, Jesus is the shepherd who pursues the sheep. Jesus is like a woman who spares no effort to find that lost coin. Jesus is like a father scanning the horizon, looking for sons and daughters who are lost to be brought into the fold of relationship and restored to family communion. 
It's at this point that Jesus introduces the older brother in verse 25. I'll just tell you up front, he's the counterpart to the Pharisees. This older brother lacked any sense of sin, had no sense of his need for grace, and he resented those who did. The older brother, completely out of touch with the father's compassion, completely out of touch with the father's welcoming spirit, he resented the fact that the brother was home. He resented the fact that the father restored him to relationship. If you're in the church world long enough, you will run into elder brothers, older brothers. Let's never confuse them with the heart of God. Charles Spurgeon, in the sermon on this subject, in the sermon apologized, he said, some of you have run into older brothers. Don't mistake the older brothers for the heart of God. The heart of God says, come home, come in. He kills the fatted calf. He rejoices. He celebrates. What the older brother didn't realize is that his heart, physically he's there, but his heart is in a far country. He's in just as much need of grace, maybe more grace even than his lost brother. And I've grown up in church, and, and I, I don't think this is a stretch, but let me say this. It seems to me that the church life and the church role is principally composed of prodigals and elder brothers. Let me explain that. Prodigals were lost and they knew it. And their lives were a wreck and a ruin. And God intervened and saved them. And they appreciate that. And then there are those of us, I'm an older brother. I've been rearing the bosom of the church. I don't have an outstanding testimony. But I can tell you that though reared in the bosom of the church, my heart was often in a far country, though I was physically present on the Lord's day. I needed as much grace to come to a sense of my own sin in need of Christ, maybe more grace than the person living in clear disobedience and rebellion. you follow what I'm saying? And sometimes the conflict in church life is between prodigals who've been saved out of incredible circumstances and elder brothers like me. I love this story for several reasons. I love it because it shows the heart of God for lost people. I love this story because I'm a recovering older brother. And I love this story because I love prodigals. Because I know prodigals. And this says to me that no matter how far they run, they will never outrun the love of God. And they will never run beyond the reach of the message of the gospel and of a Jesus who saves no matter what. A final note, and we're done. These are pictures of love that should animate those of us whom Christ has found. There are lost people to be sought there are people to be reached with the gospel. There are lost prodigals. There are lost older brothers. The world is full of people who've buried their snouts in the bitter fruits of their sin and their disobedience. And God rejoices over their conversion. And so should we. This is the will of God for His people, that we continue the ministry of Christ. It's therefore a mark of kingdom life, one that we should embrace.
one that we should relish and give our resources and our time and our energy to. Oh, love that will not let me go. Oh, love that will not let me go. Father, we thank You and praise You this night for Your heart toward us and for Your heart toward people who are estranged from You. May we, uh, may we have our heart touched and opened afresh to a grace that truly is greater than all of our sins, past, present, and future. And may out of that sense of wonder, may we be compelled to continue the ministry of Christ who seeks and saves those who are lost. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.